1: Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast brought to you by Tacticam. This podcast series aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. We cover a variety of topics that will help you be more confident and successful in the field while hunting deer. With hunting season only a couple of months away, it's time to start thinking about food plots. Now, some hunters believe that they're the ticket to tagging mature bucks each fall. Others tend to avoid them, supposing that Daylight sightings of bucks are few and far between on food plots. So what role should they play in your hunting strategy? And what goes into establishing a good food plot anyway that'll actually attract deer to your property? Well, in this episode of the How to Hunt Deer podcast, I'm talking with John Teeter of Whitetail Landscapes about establishing food plots on your hunting ground. John is an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to habitat and managing your ground for whitetails. Each year, he helps landowners design their properties to attract and hold big bucks. In this episode, John talks about the importance of soil health, minimizing hunting pressure on food plots, and he even shares a ton of tips on food plot design and planting. Before we get into the conversation with John, I want to just take a minute to thank you all for listening to these episodes each and every week. I Have a great time recording them and sharing them with you all. Uh, If you have any topics that you'd like to hear covered or suggestions for guests that you'd like to hear from, hit me up on Instagram at the Wisconsin Sportsman. The Wisconsin Sportsman is my other podcast, so uh, the how to hunt deer podcast does not have an Instagram account just yet. Maybe, uh, maybe it will come in soon. We'll see. Also want to take a moment to thank our partners who uh, make this show possible. First of all, Tacticam, they're the title sponsor of this show. They make the best point of view cameras on the market for deer hunters. They're 5.0 and 5.0 wide are capable of capturing 4k video, um, which will let you share your hunt with friends and family, uh, in a high quality kind of way. I've been using mine actually, uh, during my practice sessions recently, With their bendy clamp mount, it's super simple to set up on a tree next to you and get good slow motion footage so you can check your form while you're shooting your bow, make sure you're not punching the trigger, all of that good stuff. Right now, if you purchase a 5.0 camera and bow stabilizer mount, you'll get $50 off. That's basically like getting the stabilizer mount for free. Uh, Tacticam also just released their Reveal X Gen 2 cell camera, uh, which is great. So head over and check them out, www.tacticam.com. Next, Huntworth, they're making excellent gear for hunters who want high-quality performance without the big price tag uh, of some of the other options out there. I've been wearing their Durham lightweight pants for a while, and they're going to be great for summer scouting, great for working on food plots, great for checking trail cameras, all that good stuff. You can find more from them at www.huntworthgear.com. Now I'm going to ask you to go support those brands that support this show. Without further ado, here's my conversation with John Teeter. Joining me for this week's episode of the How to Hunt Deer podcast is John Teeter from Whitetail Landscapes, fellow podcast host on the Sportsman's Empire podcast network. How's it going, John? Good, man. How are you? How are you Ben? Doing really well. Doing really well. I'm I'm actually in the middle of a move right now, so things are pretty hectic. I've got three young kids and uh, trying to pack with three kids is like uh, herding squirrels while trying to balance stuff on your head. (laughs) I've been there, man. I can relate a hundred percent. Yeah. It's been crazy, but, uh, yeah, it's going to be a good move for us. So going to open up some new, uh, some new opportunities for, for us as a family. So I'm looking forward to that, but, um, yeah, tell me a bit about who you are, what you do and, and kind of how you got into, um, I I don't know what, do you call yourself a land consultant? Is that the right term?
0: Yeah. You could say habitat land consultant, um, I like to consider myself a deer hunting consultant, to be honest with you. Sure. That's forte. Hey, uh, I'm not a wildlife biologist. Uh, I, I read a lot of things related to wildlife biology, but there's a lot to this discipline that's, that's far beyond just biology. And, you know, I, my business, I started six years ago. And uh, prior to that, I had worked on my first property about 15 or 16 years ago and you know, through that evolution, people were kind of watching what I was doing. And I'm in uh, upstate New York. The Northeast isn't necessarily the hotbed of conversation when it comes to big bucks or habitat management or anything that's surrounding whitetail deer. So I kind of have a a bit of a niche market and my process and the system that I have in place to uh, improve hunting properties is, is quite unique compared to most people. And that really makes me um, a little different. Um, I'm, I, I am have, I have the opportunity to travel across the country and help people in other states. And because I have it so hard and my mindset of working out a necessity, I've learned um, how to approach and attack things, I think a little bit different than a lot of people. Um, and it's made me really efficient as a hunter, as a land manager, and now as a consultant with folks. And um, you know, we'll, we we're going to talk a little bit about a couple of those things today. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of excited to, to go down the road, but you know, New York is tough hunting. Uh, the deer per square mile is low in the areas that I hunt, you know, and to kill these big mature bucks and to attract them on your property really takes a lot of uh, consideration. And I've been in a place where I've been able to transform a multitude of properties, including my own. I bought a property four years ago, 48 acres. Uh, Nobody manages big bucks around my area. And just the process that I've put in place, I killed 150 inch deer last year. I killed a 138 and a 130, you know, over the past few years. And I'm hunting and I'm killing within hours. You know, I'm telling my wife, Hey, I'm going to go after this deer tomorrow. It's going to be dead at 534. I need kids to bed. Can you help me? You know, that, that, that type of sophistication that goes into this. A lot of people probably don't believe that. Um, but it's completely true. Um, and I, and I'm not saying that out of arrogance by any means, but when you get a system down, you become really efficient and, uh, you can prove that to other people. You can be a staple of success. And that's really kind of what, you know, I think you could talk about in in either food plots or soil health or timber management. You can kind of really optimize these properties to create good movement and flow and attraction levels. And, you know, that's, that's my business in a
1: nutshell. Man, that's, that's really incredible, and it's awesome, too, to hear about your property. So you're, you're having a ton of success on 48 acres.
0: Yeah, yeah, and when I first bought the property, you know, low deer numbers, and I like low deer numbers. I don't want very high deer numbers because I'm, I'm working on managing habitat. I'm not working at growing a large volume of deer. You know, when I worked on that property, when I first bought it, I hunted it, I think, twice uh, for that first year. I just observed. I, I, I let it soak in the biggest buck I had a two, it was a two and a half year old. I would say he was around 70 inches. Um, and you know, transform that two years later, I killed the biggest buck in our entire area and that deer wasn't existent. I, I sucked him in. So you can change a deer's core range with these strategies. It's not like people, people seem to think there's a lot of hocus pocus in this. It's really kind of being consistent and deliberate. And that's my process. And that's, that's really when you hunt these really tough areas. Like I can tell you, hunt roughly fifteen hundred to two thousand acres, and, and other guys hunt all these things. The only property that is exclusive is my own, but I I'll have one deer to go after this year on two thousand acres, one four and a half year old deer, and I I can tell you on a clock watch within what days I'll kill that deer prior to me killing that deer because I'm breaking down their habits and movement and how they use the landscape, what they're eating. Um, how they thermoregulate. Like there's a lot of things that go into defining movement uh, and interest in deer that it's, it's, it seems really sophisticated, but when you get right down to it, every deer has a personality. And when you only have one deer to hunt, that's the only thing you focus on. That becomes really, really fun. And then your process and system, the killing does and, you know, managing the habitat. I mean, that, that just, that's the added bonus. Yes. You know, I'm so passionate about doing this
1: stuff. Man, that, that's incredible. I, th- I think you did, was it an episode with Dan that you did on thermoregulation and how that plays oh, in yeah. hunting strategy?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you have all these wildlife biologists talking about all this, you know, interesting science and you know, that is a portion of science that to me is so valuable and Dan simplified it. He's like, you know, when deer get cold, they want to be in warmer areas and when they're warm, they want to be cooler areas. And I was like, yeah, so all this fancy, you know, language that we, we try to kind of promote and, and, I, you know, promote our sophistication, is really so simple. And I think we make it way more complex. And I think, you know, all the hoopla and all the different strategies that people employ, you can keep it really simple. I'm one of the guys that works for, for my business, who does some contracting work, we simply say what we work with our clients is cutting trees and kicking dirt. Uh, It's really that simple. So when I'm working on a a hunting property, we break it down. I have six simple steps. You know, uh, I don't, I I don't really, uh, I don't make it highly complex because I want to give them the vision to succeed. They don't need a hunting map from me. Now they get a huge report from me and if they want to read it, you know, they're paying me a fair amount of money. They they should, but you know, they need to have the vision and it's my job to have a paradigm shift and get these individuals. Uh, thinking uh, a little bit more in-depthly. And I want to give a statistic. And this statistic is meaningful. And I have not said this in any podcast, but I said it off the air and I'm going to say it today. When you start managing and thinking about how efficient your hunting is, I don't want to hunt a lot. I want to hunt a few times a year. I'm going to go in. I want to make the kills that I need to make. I want to get out. I want to be like a ghost. Over the past, I don't know, eight years, I've hunted 12 times and I've killed eight bucks. Statistically, that's impossible. That is absolutely impossible. But when you put systems in place like this, now I'm jinxing myself for this hunting season. When you put <laughs> systems in place like this, you can make that happen. I want people to start thinking about how efficient their are hunting. Put your time in the off season. And, and that's where you'll be a lot more successful. I, I find more gains in the off season than I do the on season. Because I know that tree I cut or managing that timber in the way, it's going to provide an abundance of food or abundance of cover. And deer are really simple. You know they want to survive, they want to breathe, they want to grow. That's it. Don't make it any more complicated than that.
1: Man, that's really good. I love that efficiency piece too. It's become more and more important for me as uh, my kids have gotten older, and it's just it's just harder to spend more time in the woods, uh, yeah. You know, like I used to. Like I mean, I remember you know my teens and twenties being able to spend every weekend, you know, all weekend in the woods, and uh, that's just not a possibility now. I've got you know six or seven, maybe ten days a year. That I can really maximize um, for for hunting. So being able to be more efficient when you go in uh, is is absolutely huge. So I'm interested to hear about some of the things that that lend itself toward that. in your uh, in your mind, I mean, we're gonna, we're going to get to the meat of the conversation when it comes to to food plots here in, here in just a second. But like, what are some of those sure. things that lead to that kind of efficiency?
0: So, it's it's knowing first is knowing how deer use terrain features and kind of breaking that down systematically. And you can you can do it based on observation data. Uh, I'm a little lazier now. Um, I will spend more money on buying cameras and just monitoring areas to understand of why and when they use an area. And start telling yourself a story as you start to engage yourself with a particular deer. When you think of the whys, and the whys are you know why is it doing this? And it could be as simple as, well, it doesn't want to, this deer doesn't want to socially interact with these other deer. Start understanding how deer socially interact. And once you understand that, you'll start to break down an individual deer's personality. Is he a little bit more docile? Is he, um, you know, is he more mobile? Does he bounce in certain areas? When does he terrain features and why? That That's always where I start. And then from that, you know, in place, the right facets, the characteristics of kind of creating draw, um, and knowing your landscape, uh, what your eco-region is, and what you can promote on the landscape. Anybody who's buying land, the first thing you do is look at the quality of soil on your property. That is a, a That will be a beneficial thing. In our areas, we have very weathered, poor soils. And this will relate to a food plot discussion that we have later. But, but the importance of soil is huge. In order to grow plants, you have to have good soil. That is a food source. If there's a lot of nutrients in those plants, you will attract more deer. It's really kind of a simple equation. Then it's managing the composition and the richness of that. So having the right volume and plants and the landscape. That takes time to learn. I learn about plants all the time. And observing, observing what they eat, daylighting areas, providing more sunlight. Deer need sunlight to see. It helps them. It's really simple. They don't like to be in dark areas all the time unless they're trying to thermoregulate for some particular purpose. Generally speaking, when you sunlight more of these areas, these these dense canopy areas, not only will you get food, you'll get more movement. It's a simple, it's a simple linear uh, correlation. Um, the last thing I'll say is when you're designing a hunting property, think most about how you're going to hunt the property, but don't do that the first thing. Improve the property to its maximum potential. Then start doing these kind of manipulation tactics. It could be hinge cutting. I'm a huge fan of hinge cutting. Absolutely, hinge cutting provides a great benefit on the landscape. It should not be used in every single case. If I'm doing a TSI project that I want to have accessibility, trees laid out like pick-up sticks may be a problem, but you can manipulate their movement. You can cut deer off. You can create living fences. You can create food sources. Um, There's a, there's a, a... a list of things that, that will be beneficial. Hinge cutting is a tool. There's 50 other tools that, that, that I use on the landscape. Um, it's exposing deer to the, the optimal conditions and thinking about what deer need all season long, food-wise, cover-wise, and really start to engage with the environment. Um, last thing I'll say is biomimicry. That's a term you'll hear used by scientists. Essentially, what is good in nature should stay in nature. And if you can replicate it, continue to replicate it. So if you see something cool in the field, like, man, these deer are bedding in these white pines. Why are they bedding in those white pines? What are the conditions that presented itself where they have interest? Maybe replicate that on your property, mimic it. So those are the strategies that I employ. It's really simple. If you do those things and observe, you can really improve your honey property.
1: Man, that there's so much that goes into that. I, I have an idea for about 18 more episodes that we can do now. Uh, (laughs) I don't know that we have time for all that, but, but one piece that I did want to focus in on today is that that food plot piece. And I feel like, uh, one, that's a lot of times where guys start, like they buy a piece of property and the first thing they want to do is say, okay, where are some open areas or where can I create an opening so that I can just get a food plot in so I can hunt it. The other piece is the marketing that goes on with the different food plot blends. Um, they're marketed as though. If you plant this stuff, you're going to kill a big buck over it. It's going to happen every single time. And I know Mm -hmm. food plots are important, but I also know there are things like natural browse that play a huge role. There are things like quality cover that play a huge role. What's your take on the value of food plots?
0: So I simply look at this. I look at space and I I say, okay, if I've got 50 acres and I have uh, the majority of my 50 acres, my my personal 50 acres is, is timber. So it's probably around, 95% timber what if you're in a situation like that um, managing sunlight is critical and if you have a huge percentage of that woodlot and you can create more food availability across that 50 acres by cutting timber and that food is going to sustain those deer and they're also provided source of cover I value that far greater than a food plot now when I look at food plots I look at them as a pathway so everything has a purpose. And when I look at the landscape, I define a purpose for everything. Like I'll find it's the purpose for hemlock. We have hemlocks all over the place. Is it a food source? Yes. Is it a comfort source? Yes. Does it allow the deer to thermoregulate? Yes. Does it provide some level of protection to the deer? Absolutely. So you're starting to find a purpose behind anything. Food plots have a purpose to sustain deer. They primarily, in my mind, as a path, have a, have a purpose to direct deer movement. Directing deer movement is critical. It's critical to hunting. If I want to get a deer to disperse in a certain direction, a food plot is probably one of your best tools. So think of it as a, as a, a means or like it's, its utilization is most appropriate to create movement. And, you know, the biggest thing I would say is, um, is, uh, is to think more so about when, when you're developing a food plot, think about a food plot kind of like a buffet. I'm not a monocropper, and we'll talk about my strategy, and I'll give you some examples. I'm going to give you a blend today that I want people to consider, and uh, you don't need to buy it in a bag. You can make it and do it a lot cheaper. Um, you know, think about deer and their demands, nutritional demands. Uh, just like humans, you know, Ponderosa was a place when I was a kid, we used to be able to, my parents would take me, and we'd do the buffet, and I'd eat chick wings, and maybe sometimes, you know, ice cream and everything else that goes along with that. Our bodies are built. Uh, we have the nutritional wisdom to understand what our bodies need. And our bodies are kind of built along the lines where they need uh, a diverse uh, intake and recognizing that every plant provides a majority of macro and micronutrients. And those compounds benefit us. In fact, there's all these really, really smart people that are going down the soil health kick and they're missing one really big piece that we'll talk about today. And this should really inform people because, these guys that have all these seed blends, and I'll, I'll, I'll label some companies. Uh, Green Cover Seed's one of them. Uh, there's uh, another company that I can think of. What they're missing on the landscape is a lot of these areas are, are soils are weathered. And when you have weathered soils, you do not have the mineral content to help your deer survive. Not just survive, thrive. And we'll talk a little bit about that today. And there's, uh, there's going to be my strategy you're going to hear about over the next several years is how to remineralize our food plots. And that's going to make way more level of attraction than you ever have. And that's why I'm able to suck in deer on my little 50 acres because I've got good soil and I'm remineralizing it. And uh, I'm doing it naturally and really, really cheap. So
1: Man, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, ab- <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And before we get too far down the road, food plots in the way that you're talking about them. Is this something that a guy needs to have lots of big equipment for, or is this something that a dude with a rake and some willpower uh, can get out there and accomplish?
0: So two things. So I'm not a rake guy. I'm not a rototiller guy. Um, I want to keep it really simple. The best thing you could do is you could buy uh, a weed whacker uh, or a walk behind brush cutter. If anybody wants to make investments, those are good investments to have. You can buy, New use, what have you, and a backpack spread. You can do all your food plots, probably up to a couple acres with just those tools. Now you need something to seed, you know, the seed, um, you know, that whether it's bag spreader or what have you. Um, but you could pretty much get away under a thousand dollars if you're renting something like a walk behind brush cutter, depending on the size and managing, you know, or maybe you're borrowing something. Uh, weed whackers are a little tough to get over a half acre, but you could rent those for a 100, 150 bucks for a weekend you can do things pretty inexpensively and that can double as you know, creating trails or creating access trails, what have you. Um, I, I would start there with equipment wise. It doesn't need to be beyond that, but you're going to have to learn a little about a little bit about herbicides. And, uh, I'm not a huge herbicide guy, but you're going to have to do a little research and then figure out, you know, what, what's the right seed to put down.
1: Yeah. Okay. So when you're, I guess the best place to start this would be, okay, you've got a blank canvas. Right, you yep. want to start to think about your food plot strategy for a property. What are some of those first things that you're starting to take into account when you're deciding? Okay, where are these plots going to go? What are they going to look like? What am I trying to connect? So, I think thinking about how everything juxtaposed is
0: um, difficult. You know, there's a lot of different strategies. Like, here's one example: I have a food plot right in the center of my property. Now. If you watch any YouTube video, right, people will dissuade and say that is the craziest thing. Listen, when you have small acreage, you have to be very precise and you have to create a lot of value. So putting things in odd areas sometimes is okay. It's thinking about what's the purpose behind that. So I want to track and whole deer in an area. I want to hunt them on the edges. I hunt the deer on the peripheral, not in the center. And so it's okay to do that in your design philosophy. Also some of the strategies you're going to take a deer and they're going to go down this linear path and they're going to exit towards this food plot. Now you're worried about, okay, what's the size, you know, can it survive, you know, a lot of deer? I mean, what are my deer populations like? And then the third thing you're trying to think of what's the quality of my soil? Should I take a soil sample? Um, A lot of people don't want to take that step. It's a cheap step. The entity I use is Logan Labs. They are very sophisticated. They are better than most of the labs. There's another ward lab. There's another lab that I hear everybody talking about. Um, and thinking about the deficiencies, think about this simply a deficient plant or deficient soil leads to a deficient plant. You want nutrient dense plants, period. The more you till your soils, the more you oxidize the organic material. I always love these guys. These cell fields, they go and they cut it and then they disc it. And three years later, like, Nothing grows well in it. Well, you've depleted the soil content by degrading the organic matter. The organic matter is a substance in the soil. Look at it this way. It's the food source. Most of the nutrient exchange between the plant and the the, uh, microbial activity happens as a result of the decomposition of plant life. Well, if you keep tilling stuff, there's not a lot of green dying stuff that continues to propagate itself in the soil your plant isn't getting the nutrients it needs and you know what we do we start throwing fertilizer all over the place and that negates the whole process of how the environment works plants need microbes microbes need plants there's a symbiotic relationship between invertebrates and vertebrates and all these little insects and all these little mammals across the landscape everything works together so you have to think about the synergy of everything it's a holistic point of view your question earlier, when you're thinking about food plots, you've got to think about what I'm lacking. Am I deficient in phosphorus? What can I do to replenish phosphorus? Sometimes plants do a good job of mining phosphorus from the ground. And if you're using cover crops, a cover crop would be like a plant that uh, does really well. And actually it's funny because cover crops, what they define them as is, is plants that provide cover they're a sustaining plant, maybe not a cash crop. Um, You can maybe harvest them as a food source. Um, Maybe you can sell them for that matter. But those particular plants, what they they do well is they grow. They're known for growing well. And by the way, deer happen to eat those. It's coincidental that cover crops associate themselves well with deer. You can throw down oats and it grows on the ground. You don't even have to till it in the ground. So thinking a little bit more about deficiencies is really critical. So I would suggest somebody goes out that it's wanting to do this and get a soil sample. And if you do one thing and you're deficient, let's say you're, you're, uh, you have a um, your pH, your hydrogen levels are not appropriate. So you're you're somewhat acidic. Um, you may need to add lime. And do you want to add lime like short-term? They do this calcium carbonate. They, they spray, plot, all that stuff. That's a short-term solution. And it sits in the top profile and it weathers away. Or do you want a long-term solution? Do you want to use something that has uh, it's, it's a higher mesh grade and it meaning it sits there and it solubilizes it, it. It degrades at a slower rate. So you got to think long-term or short-term. So that's something that I, that I would do. There's another small thing I'll suggest is, and there's books out here out that says you can read the soil. Reading the soil by the plants that grow there, if you've compacted soil, you'll see a lot of plantain. So maybe you have to till it. So maybe instead of using the walk-behind brush cutter. You may have to get in there with a rototiller or a chisel plow. It's okay to do that. Just don't do it every single year and don't do it twice a year. My goodness. That's a bad idea. Okay. I went on a tangent.
1: No, man, that, that's, that is incredible. Again, there's another couple of podcast episodes in there. Just thinking about the whole soil health piece. Um, how much, so when you show up to a property, let's say you've got a client and it's just a raw piece of land, maybe it's all timber. Um yep. how much are you going to take into account like current bedding uh access when and that kind of thing when you're thinking about your food plots or or how much are you going to say you know what I know what I want this property to look like and I'm just going to create the things I want where I want them
0: Yeah I, I think it's foolish uh and I've learned this over the years I think it's foolish to go with that mindset that you can control everything You know I've experienced it on my own property you know I knew, I want the deer traveling you know uh, east and west versus north and south and I can control all their movements and, you know, I, I puppeteer things. That's that's completely incorrect. I mean, you've got to kind of work with what you have. And it's thinking maybe the bedding area that currently exists because let's say a, a tree fell over or a bunch of trees fell over from the storm and maybe it's 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 minimizing their interest. It's taking, going there with a um, a bunch of rocks and throwing them in all the bed so there's your bed in those areas and maybe moving that, some distance away. So you can go in there and hunt an area. Uh, maybe making areas where deer can socially congregate a little bit better, thinking about how deer socialize, that's really critical. But thinking about its position and location to where you want to hunt the deer. So you can make minor modifications. Those are major modifications. Now, when you have terrain features, I've manipulated terrain features. So let's say I have a hillside. I want deer to bend on hillside that's really steep. I'll go in with a dozer and I'll terrace it. Um, I, I can manipulate to do what I need it to do in order to get deer in an area. If I want to hold more deer, the way I disperse food in those areas is really critical. It may not be in alignment with a hunting scenario, like my example is saying I put food in the center of my property. In fact, I put a cornfield in the center of my property this year. Because there's one deer in two years that I want to track and hold them a little longer on my property and I think that'll hold them up before the neighbors kill him. And, you know, I may fail at that and he may get killed. But that strategy, I'm thinking two years ahead because I know I have one deer in 2,000 acres that I'll have the opportunity to potentially kill and may meet my, you know, what I hope to be a a shootable deer. You know, that could be 130-class deer or 120-class deer. That deer's a phenomenal deer that I'm talking about, but in those examples, you really have to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And don't just walk out there without a purpose. One of the biggest mistakes I see on all the properties they go on is like, I'm going to put a food plot here. They don't know why. They haven't looked at the soil composition and understand the tilt, the texture, the type of soil they have, CEC levels, pH, where they're deficient, any of those things. And they just decide this is a location. And by the way, what they do worse next is they'll cut an area that's too small, and they won't get the volume of sunlight they need. So anybody creating a fruit plot, you need enough sun. You need six hours, minimally. Sit there. If you have time, sit there and see how long the sun sits in that area. Think about it slope is it east or west slope um is it north facing south facing think about the plants that do well in those areas and what you realize is you know you're going it's trial and error um like alfalfa great example a lot of guys like to plant alfalfa i just said a client sent me alfalfa and i planted it ground up ready alfalfa alfalfa doesn't do good in certain conditions uh, if you have shallow soils it will not do well it does not do well in very wet soils either so the type of soil dictates the type of plant that you want to grow in those areas. Sandy soils is a good example. Corn does really, really well in sandy soils, But you're not going to plant corn at, you know, depending on the seed type, you know, 30,000 seeds per acre. You may plant at 15 or 20,000. It's a lower rate. So you've got to match the plant with the soil type. That's really critical. And I'm not a master at any of this stuff. But, you know, you start to learn these small attributes of things that you can be successful in. And then I'll give you really simple, stupid things that you can do that will make you successful on any soil. We'll talk about it at the end.
1: Hey guys, just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the How to Hunt Deer podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best action cameras on the market for the hunter and angler. They're on the cutting edge, making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. They also just launched the Reveal X Gen 2 cell camera that provides top-notch photo and video quality at a price point that's in reach for the everyday outdoorsman. And one area the Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunts or fishing excursions, you know how frustrating it can be to try to get a action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or get it set up for a good second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of accessories. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with the 5.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure that I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, www.tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. Just stepping away from from the, the soil piece for just a second and into, um, I think, maybe like the size and shape of food plots. I okay. see a lot out there, and we can certainly get back to the soil stuff here in just a second, but this, this is just intrigues me what, what do your food plots look like? Like, what do you recommend to folks? Are, are they long and skinny? Are they hourglass shaped? Are you, you just want a big round circle? Like, how do, you, how do you, how do you go about thinking, um, what you want your plot to look like? Or is it specific, you know, specific to, uh, you know, the terrain?
0: It is. I mean, it's ter- terrain will obviously dictate, you know, the size and shape of the plot. So I'll take my, my, uh, my property. So when I bought the property, there was a three acre field up top. I shrunk that field down about uh, three quarters of an acre. Now, if I was really trying to maximize deer interest, I would have not done that. Um, and when I say that maximize, I'm talking about maximize the number of deer and interest levels on the property. I want to be able to stack deer in multiple locations and I want to drag them into these areas. Like I said earlier, our pathway, the, the size and shape. Um, and oh, by the way, another thing I keep hearing is people, Oh, we don't hunt food plots. Well, if I'm hunting two or three times a year, I mean, I, I hunted my own property twice last year and, uh, you know, I, I, hunt, I think I hunted five times last year total. And, you know, I, I want the deer to flow through those areas to make them killable every time. So it's kind of manipulating, or in this case, you know, you could run a fence in between the middle of your plot and split it up and the deer have to come around the fence. Or you could put sorghum or sorghum grass, or you could run a corn strip, you know, you could, you can minimize or maximize the way that they, they run through that particular area, uh, you can put fencing up I mean, there's a lot that you can do. So shape is conditioned on the type of soil. So, you know, where you have the best soils and the terrain features. A lot of times you'll see boomerang plots for me, um, winding plots. I have minimum thresholds. Like I guess I'll, I'll reveal one of my strategies. You know, I'll have, depending on the size of the field, I do not want the deer seeing more than 60 yards. That's maximum. So when I'm designing a food plot, I'm using that as a threshold to kind of set up movement. That's a real big secret of mine that I've been you know, using for years. And those are in grounds that are highly pressured. You're not going to get the distance of movement that you typically assume. Like the deer that I'm killing, uh, the particular deer I killed this year, that's a great story. If anybody's heard that, it's a, kind of a crazy story how I killed that deer. But he only moved. and I didn't know he was in the bedding area where, where I killed. I I knew he was in the he data there. I there, uh, the deer was in there. I had no cameras in there, telling me that deer was in there. But he, I know he moved only 125 yards from his bedding area, and he did it right at dusk. So the distance that those deer move is critical, and their comfortability in those areas and feeling somewhat confined—not confined where they don't have, you know, they don't have the ability to escape—but you can compartmentalize that food plot and make the flow appropriate. So as they move through there they have to continue to seek out what's the next thing, but they feel cover around them, but they don't feel the pressure. So hunting less over food plots and being able to get in and out of those is is critical shape and size its it's all over the place. I mean, I've done food plots that look like stars, Turkey foots. Um, tomorrow I'm going to work on a property and I'm doing a long tadpole looking food plot. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, and again, I'm just working with terrain features. I'm trying to, emphasize movement. And by the way, over time food plot shapes will change based on here how deer utilize areas. Uh, I just had a phone call with a jury, jury yesterday. Uh, they're uh, one of the fire managers on our podcast. And we're talking about, you know, exactly how they take their time trying to figure out the best strategy and layout of that kind of food plot shape. Um, and you got to think about how your equipment will get in there. And that's another piece of it.
1: Wow, so the reason for not wanting your deer to see more than, you know, 50, 60 yards or whatever is for that comfortability piece and for them to kind of have to keep moving. Absolutely. Okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Pathway. Food plots are pathways. Keep thinking that when you're developing a food plot.
1: Yeah, man, I, I grew up hunting in the deep south, and, you know, the food plots we had there were either an egg shape uh, in the middle of the pines, or it was a planted power line, which provided sure. none of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> power lines power lines need to, and I'll be on a property on Thursday, power lines need, need to be broken apart. You know, you've got to really think about the relative distance and how those deer socialize, but not just how they socialize. You've got to think about more so, here's the one thing I, I've realized over over time is you don't know what deer want to eat all the time. You, you can assume, you know, this is the flavor of the month, like strawberries right now in our area is the flavor of the month for, for humans, right? You've got to kind of relate that tactic. And when you have these monocrops, crops, like it's completely a corn uh, food plot. Oh, I got, oh, remind me, I'm going to talk a little bit about a design thing. i we're talking about this, so we got a good idea for your listenership. Um, thinking about what their demands are, having very diverse food plots, will create this extra movement that buffet style goes so, so far. And a concept, my buddy, Todd Chippy from Empire Land Management is also on our podcast. He talks about layering food plots and he will go back two weeks and he will throw on oats and they'll go back two weeks later and throw winter rye out. And his principle is that you're continuing to give them, you know, you're putting pressure on your food plots to, to know that there's a positive. Every time somebody comes on a property, it's a positive thing. Um, but you're giving them the opportunity to have diversity. And that is just so critical to create that pathway. Uh, one thing I wanted to add, uh, one of the concepts I've been playing with, and it works really, really well is you get these, like, let's just say it's a snaky food pot, which is kind of my favorite style. And on either side of that snake, um, you have a less desirable food source closer to the hunting blind and a more desirable in the center and then even more desirable uh, maybe on the other side and maybe that more desirable is late season because their movement's going to be slightly delayed and you're creating a pathway. So think about like a snake and then on either side. So one side, maybe it's a, a sorghum, something along those lines in the center. Maybe it's a diverse mix. Like it's uh, you know, bursting clover, balanza clover, crimson clover. It's a lot of clover. Um, it's something that can handle browse pressure and on top of that, like oats or rye, maybe an almond sweet. And, and then on the other side, you've got kind of a late-season food source like corn. So it actually is creating this structure. And then you have these little, small shooting lanes. And this doesn't need to be very, you know, wide. It could be 30 yards wide. Uh, and you get got these little, small shooting lanes into that little pathway that travels in the center of the snake. And, man, those deer will use that food plot 10 times more. Observationally, I've seen it over and over again. Statistically, I'm sure I could prove that that to be the case, that design right there is killer. So anybody who wants to come up with a cool food plot design, there's your answer right there. So hopefully that helps.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I think one more question that maybe the everyday guy is kind of asking, I know from my own experience, you know, planting food plots and ending up thinking I'm just not getting any daylight movement. I'm not getting any daylight activity. What are, what are a few more things that you can do to maybe encourage deer to, to, uh, use that plot during the day? Or are you just going to say, you know what, this isn't the right spot. I need to move this.
0: Well, if the deer are in the area, you know, you create, you can create layering. So, uh, one thing I think people don't pay attention to is, is deer move all day uh, and deer eat all day. Uh, some people, some people think like they talk about st- structured eating patterns and eating times. Uh, that's a fallacy. Uh, they are more inclined to eat at certain times than other times based on their routine and availability of food. So deer eat five times in the 24-hour period. Uh, get that out of your head. Uh, that's not That's not correct. Deer eat at variable times. Every deer eats differently. They're moving constantly. So to get to your point is, let's say a deer is transitioning on my property. And let's think of it in layers, okay? Kind of like a cake. They go to layer one, there's a food source. There's a cover source. Then they get up, they stretch the legs, they go to area two, another food source. And in these areas uh, where there's bedding and food, you're creating the right amount of cover and right amount of food. Now, I'm not going to give you guys like you know what that needs to look like, and because that gets a, bl- a little bit more complicated. But if you think about how deer stage up, if you're providing food throughout your property and cover throughout your property, and then you got these candy crops in the mix, your movement will increase exponentially. And so that they're not using my food plot scenario kind of goes away. Now, on the flip side of it, we want deer to live. And a lot of deer, you know, because maybe the next year, or maybe we just want to hold deer for that matter. Uh, maybe we're working against our neighbor, it's a competing interest. Again, the more food you can have in your bedding areas, the better, particularly on smaller grounds. Larger grounds a different scenario. You may segregate things a little bit more. What you'll find is if you create a lot of food, and cover, and when I say cover, a lot of stem count adjacent to food plots, you will notice more daylight usage. Period. It becomes a social thing, so the number of deer and their frequency, and those types of things. You have to engage with, you know, how frequency that how frequent the deer are using that, and and what's you know what's being consumed. Uh, you know, I, I'll do biomass, I'll, I'll cut biomass, and I'll, I'll weigh and and i weigh the volume of food in my food pots to get, get an idea of how much utilization is there. Uh, food pot cages to see, you know, what air, you know, what's the consumption rate, you know, is it high, medium, low? Those are very critical. Um, daylighting activity happens most often with low pressure. So thinking about, you know, human intrusion in concert with daily movements and kind of observing that and try to observe that with your camera. So it's more naturalized. I think that will change, um, how deer move, and giving them all that they need. I mean, you know, during the time that they want to breed, having a lot of does in an area can be very, very helpful to you. Um, giving food and cover makes those deer seek those dense areas of cover. And by the way, don't jump into the bedding areas per se, but maybe put a food source, maybe put a little food plot inside a small area cover. As soon as you have them enough light, go back to the rule, six hours, minimum six hours. Does that help?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And with that, I, I want to circle back to something that you mentioned a little bit earlier too. Um, you said yep. you have food right in the middle of your property and you're right. That that goes against, man, almost everything that I've heard. I know of one other guy out there who's, who's said the same thing and he likes to have food in the middle of his property as opposed to the edges. What's kind of your reasoning behind that? Because I've heard people say, well, I want to put my cover and my bedding in the center and my food on the outside. Is that generally true or... Is it just property dependent? All right. So let's talk why
0: for now. So when you're developing a property, you're trying to, in my case, I'm trying to create, I have really good terrain features. That's another reason I bought my property. So I have good soil and good terrain features. I can stack a lot of deer. I can create a lot of cover. I can give them a lot of opportunity for visual advantage. So picture this big toilet bowl. And when you cut cut a lot of these areas, one's going to swirl, um, in different ways. And so you've got to pay attention when you're making decisions and manipulate the landscape, what happens as a result of that. So there's areas of my property that I can't hunt. And there's areas where deer are going to stack up tremendously. Now I may put a lower value food component in there. So I may only apply, let's say winter rye. I'm only going to put winter rye in the center of my food or in in the center of my property. And that's going to create some level attraction. And I'm going to put the candy crops up in the areas where I'm hunting. And it's just sustaining them in that area so they don't move as frequently and they don't move off my property. That's predominantly the purpose behind that. Now, what I did this year, because I told you I have one deer that I'm hoping in a year or two, I'm able to kill. I'm not going to kill him this year. At least I don't intend to, but who knows? Maybe I'll get desperate and want to kill him. Um, addition to that, I planted corn. And the reason why I planted corn, because I wanted some cover in there. And I know that I have better food sources adjacent to that. And I'll pull uh, those dose because it's created better bedding areas that are sizable. It meets their, uh, their size requirements for bedding areas. We won't get in that today. But off these little isolated points, I'll see a lot more utilization by bucks in the bottom. There'll be a lot more swirling in those areas. Um, it's adjacent to a water source. So those areas will have uh, a diverse food source adjacent to that water source. And again, that food provides an element of cover just to get that one buck. My hope is that one buck to have a higher interest level in a daylight scenario on my property. And eventually, as my neighbors get on, on more, you know they get on board with me, and none of my neighbors are really on board with me, um, but I think one of my neighbors will, I'll take that center food pot and I'll turn it into more of a club, a cover source allow it to, you know, kind of, uh, or sterile into the next stage. And I'll design a, a bedding area with thermal features, non-thermal features, food features, and then I'll diversify that. And that'll become a natural food source, um, which it would anyhow. And, and I'll give uh, another little example. So people want really cheap food plots and they want to do things really simply. We talked earlier about a weed whacker and a walk brush cutter or a backpack sprayer. This time of year coming up, all food plots are going to be paramount See if we're going to start getting ready. So here's what I'm going to tell you: go in July 1st, weed whack your food plots July 10th, go in, spray your food plots The same time you spray those food plots when you get that regrowth, and I'll say use a generic herbicide like glyphosate, something along those lines. When you when you select that area, and again, it's got to meet uh, a purpose. It's got to, You got to define a purpose for it. Maybe that's helping deer flow through an area, put down red clover, maybe seven, eight acres of uh, seven, eight pounds an acre uh, and oats and, and put that down. And I would say oats, maybe 50, 60 pounds an acre. Just that, that total for an acre is going to cost you probably around, I don't know, $30. Cheapest food pot you'll have $30. And then, you know, your utilization will be through the roof. And then go back there August 10th and go put down about, oh, I'm just making up numbers, 40, 50 pounds of winter rye or, or winter wheat. And uh, just broadcast it. You're just broadcasting stuff. You're just throwing stuff on the ground. You'll be amazed at the utilization you get out of a small food pot like that. And that food pot will cost you no more than $40. Most of the time I'm doing really small food plots. You know, they're maybe a tenth of an acre. They're costing me about 60 six, eight bucks. Manson. So oh, go ahead. Know, keep it simple. I mean, keep it simple. Um, you don't need to have, like, I don't have a no drill. I've got some equipment, but you know, you can do things on a budget. And uh, if you're thinking about how to get the most return on investment, food plot pathways for small properties is critical. Um, you know, you're limited by your equipment in some capacity of how large of an area you can do but keep it really simple. Stop buying stuff in a bag. Go to your local ag place. Those guys have been working with farmers for years and that stuff that I just said will grow on rock I don't Care what your soil pipe is. I don't care about any of that growing rocks. And, and you know, that's a really simple, um, uh, simple recommendation,
1: man. So easy to establish, um, uh, pretty attractive, really cheap, and uh, from the sounds of what you mentioned, it sounds like it would give you season-long attraction.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, you'll get next season, like the red clover that's that this year, it's biannual, it'll reseed itself. I may broadcast some, you know, perennial clover in there. You know, the one thing about clover is always consistent. The thing with perennial plots is you may not get the volume, the tonnage per se. Um, annual plots have a tendency to get a lot of tonnage. You know, you think about brassicas you know, these big leafy, but what they do is they create this big void. They're very, uh, nitrogen heavy. They're nitrogen based plants and they degrade at a very high rate. We're trying to minimize bare soil. You know, the one thing I do in my food plots is I got this whole system and, uh, it's cheap. My average price per acre right now is about 125 bucks an acre. And, um, you know, I think about maturity rates of plants and, you know, I'll give you a good fall example, something that I'd probably use crimson clover, birth i I do a uh, survivor pea, triticale, uh, black oats, some collards. Uh, I would do a low volume of, of turnips or tillage radish. And then, you know, about August and August, I'm going to put about 30, 40 pounds of winter wheat in there. And, Again, because I want these crops in the next season. I don't want a void in my plants. And then all I'll do around May is I got a roller crimper. I've been doing this for eight years. So I've been doing this longer than growing deer TV or a lot of these guys that you hear about. And all I want to do is keep it simple. I didn't want it complex because I didn't want to spend money on a no-fill drill. I knew that I could come up with crop rotations that I could just broadcast. And in doing that, I wait till a plant hits a certain rate of maturity and you could roll it. You could, I don't know, in my garden, I have like a a stick and a string and I just crimp it. Um, Or I've got a big roller crimper on the back of my tractor. You don't need to buy a roller crimper or you can make one. Um, I had one, I had a guy make one. I I had a small one for my ATV that I sold a few years ago. You know, and, and there's this all soil health movement biggest thing that people can do is don't till your soil. And if you till it, till it at a very high level. Um, Maybe use a set of discs. And it doesn't need to look like black gold. Um, So try to minimize that. Think about your rotations of plants. and Always have something growing in your soil. And think about where you're deficient. There's this idea, I'm bringing this up again, that everybody thinks that plants fix soil. That is somewhat true. They help biology they help increase nutrient availability, but they don't fix all the elements of the soil. So you're listening to these guys that say plants fix dirt. It's partially true, but it's not holistically true. And that's something that I want to promote here. You can remineralize the soil. Um, guys like me, I, I, there's only a few guys in the I don't even know if there's anybody doing what I, I'm doing right now, but, you know, there's a few guys that may know about this. Um, and. You know, it's taking a different approach and you can do it really cheap. I'm amending soils for 50 to hundred bucks an acre. Those nutrients should last 10 to 15 years and I never have to put fertilizer. And I haven't used fertilizer in my food plots in eight years. So you can amend soils. Um, you, there's there's ways and, and there's process behind that. You guys are getting on these soil kicks and it drives me nuts because why do you care so much about that? You're not saving the earth necessarily. Um you're maybe decreasing your carbon footprint, but you're trying to replenish and create the most nutrient dense plants on the landscape. If you don't have good soils, you got an uphill battle. So that's why I said when you're buying your property, think about your soil quality before you pull the trigger on that piece of land. And uh it might be worth hiring a consultant to help you figure that out.
1: Yeah, do you know any good ones that I could call?
0: Nope. Don't know any. <laughs> Ever met one. Um uh, you know, and, and here's the other thing, man. You know, I, I'm trying to give as much information on, on this as you can, but people are a lot smarter than they give themselves credit for. They really are. And um, don't get caught up in the in the bedding in the bag. Don't get caught up in um, all these new, um, I don't know, these, these new trends that you see. Um, I said earlier, I kick dirt and I cut trees. If it starts getting more complex than that, you're not solving the problem, you're creating more problems. So think about that as one of your kind of your uh, dogmas or your, your, your mantras that you have when you're designing a hunting property and people get confused. I want to unconfuse you. You know, there's a simple process to going about designing a hunting property and not every design is going to be uh, completely uh, identical. They're all going to vary. And rule sets kind of give you parameters. And that's really, really important. And everything's, flexible don't be too uh too rigid in your mindset so maybe if we said earlier 60 yards well maybe i don't have the landscape to support that so it's 40 yards and as a result of that i i've got to think more about kind of the shape and the shape uh maybe will dictate how they move through there but i also have to think about the real estate and the volume of food how much biomass am i creating to create attraction levels that's really critical in the whole process of things because. It's not just biomass, it's diversity, it's n- nutrient-dense plants. And I gave you a real simple example of clover. Clover's king. You talked to the jury, uh, and I, I bring up them because I have a lot of respect for those guys. Clover is one of their favorite food uh, seed choices. You know, you could have a monocrop of clover, there's nothing wrong with it, or clover or chicory, um, and it's simple. It doesn't have to be a 15-species blend that I'm doing. And I'm playing with percentages, and I'm going to those pots and studying them every day because I want maybe a little bit more pollination opportunity. Uh, maybe I want to have diversity because maybe I'm creating more attraction for woodchucks because my kids like to watch the woodchucks in the backyard. I mean, just think about, you know, you're benefiting the environment and all the animals, or maybe you're very species-focused and you just want deer to have a high-level attraction in those areas. But, but I tell you, you'll benefit a larger a larger percentage of animals uh, when you diversify, but there's nothing wrong with just a straight up clover plot. Yeah. One thing I want to add and I'll I'll shut off about this is I'll give you another strategy in your food plots. It's a good idea to sometimes have a perennial option for them. So if you do till and you do add like an annual rotation, like I was talking about earlier, Hey, we got plants in the spring. Maybe we have a mid season, maybe double crop. So maybe we have, you know, a buckwheat, peas, and oats in the spring—we double crop them because they're 50-day periods. We got a 140-day growing season, and then come mid-August, we we roll those down or crimp those down or whatever you do, and you're broadcasting your next crop. But there's going to be gaps where you don't have the plants growing in an abundance, and it's good to have thing to have a perennial crop in that mix, maybe adjacent to it, you know, like a clover and a alfalfa or a combination, maybe it's clover, alpha, and chicory, you know, as an example.
1: Man, that that's really good. I hope one of the things that, that listeners take away from this episode is if you need to get a food plot in or want to get a food plot in, it can be really simple, but if you yeah. really want to go down the rabbit hole, there's a whole lot there to dive into, to maximize your food plot.
0: Yeah. Great, great way to synopsize it. I mean, that, That is the, that is the difference. I mean, you know, we're talking about framework. We're talking about how to design a hunting property. We're talking about getting deer to be more daylight active. The trick to all that is providing them everything that they need on your property and limiting your human intrusion. The one thing I do, I go on my property all the time. So I'm going to, I'm going to defunct what I just said. Every time I go on my property, I bring a chainsaw with me and I cut a tree and I cut a tree all season long. When they hear that chainsaw, they think of a positive stimuli. I never leave my property without giving them some benefit. Good example. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a proponent of mowing clover. I like to mow clover because I don't like to spray herbicide. Yes, I'm reducing my biomass. Yes, everyone's saying it. NDA, that's a bad thing because Craig Harper has done these studies. Craig's a really smart guy, probably one of the smartest guys. He's really right in a lot of ways. But if you're not an herbicide guy, maybe you want to mow. And by the way, when I'm mowing, I'm creating new, fresh growth. And I'm checking my trail cameras at the same time I'm mowing. So I'm giving them a treat. my mowing my, my clover plot. And I'm able to check my trail cameras off my lawnmower. Pretty simple example. Easy strategy. There's a benefit. So always think about creating the positive stimuli. Anytime you create a negative stimuli or negative reaction, what happens? You run away. We don't want deer to run away. We want them to stay. So think about that when you're working on your, your property or accessing your trail cameras or hunting.
1: Good and, stuff. And
0: very, very purposeful. That's, that's the trick.
1: Good stuff, man. You've given us a ton to chew on from this. I, I definitely want to have you on again to talk sure. specifically sure. about soil health. I think- man, we could, I think we could go a, a long ways in that. But in the meantime, if folks want to get a hold of you or folks want to find out more from you, I mean, you're putting out a ton of good content. You had an episode this week actually on uh, Understory, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Timber, timber pimping, and Understory. Yeah, cool. yeah.
1: I saw the title. <laughs> I was like, man, that's good. That's good. So where, where can folks go if they want more from you or want to get a hold of you? Maybe have you come out and uh, take a look at their property or maybe, I don't know if you do map consulting as well.
0: No, I do. I do hands-on consulting. Um, I, I do work with the clients. I do have uh, somebody who works for me, does implementation work. I will work with you. Uh, I will do hands-on days. Um, go to whitetaillandscapes.com, Check out the podcast. I'm trying to give, you know, I'm just not the only one on the podcast. we got a bunch of great guys. There's a hunting strategy group. There's uh, people to consult like me, people that are implementers. There's a lot of guys in there. So that's uh, Whitetail Landscapes. It's called Maximize Your Hunt. It's obviously on Sportsman's Empire. The other thing is send me an email. If you want to hear about something or learn about something, send, send me an email. If you want to be a client, get into my system. I'm really booked out in 2023. You know, I take on a lot of clients. Uh, there's a lot of value here. And I, I got to tell you, when you hunt out of necessity and you learn a lot about this from the grassroots up and you've got kind of a concrete system, and it's flexible, but a process. You defunct all these YouTube and um Bits of information out there. Anybody who hires me to stop watching YouTube, it's just going to confuse you. And I'm not saying there's not great information on YouTube. There really is. I think Jeff surgeons has done a great job promoting, you know, this type of field and this discipline. But I tell you, it creates a lot of confusion and distraction. And that's not always a good thing. And uh, we don't want people to feel like they're being riddled. So we'll hit a topic on that podcast, and it'll be awesome. And uh, it may not another topic or it may. So you got to take it contextually and understand it's value and then see if it applies to you. And think about what the guys are doing in the South versus the North. You know, today we didn't talk about warm season and cool season food plots, but certain plants do better in certain conditions. Think about your growing season. And then if you have questions, get a hold of me. Listen to the podcast, um, you know, john at whitetaillandscapes.com You can call me. You can email me appreciate any feedback people have or any questions that you have and i'm always learning so i'll learn from you and that's the, that's the beauty of uh, in this business you learn a lot from your clients
1: very good man well, john teeter whitetail landscapes thanks for coming on the show man really appreciate your time and looking forward to having you on again
0: all right man thanks for taking time with me and listening to me uh, go off and on and on and on i appreciate it thanks buddy all right man talk to you soon.
1: Thanks again for listening to today's show. Big thanks to John for coming on. I hope you learned a ton about food plots. Really looking forward to having him on again, especially to talk about that soil health piece. Uh, I feel like there's just a ton to dive into there. So also want to say big thanks to our partners, Tacticam and Huntworth. You can find more outdoor themed content on the com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network so you don't miss a single episode And while you're at it, go check out the other show that I host, the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast. It's based in Wisconsin, but the content is relevant no matter where you call home.